Welcome to another episode of the Haskin Cast Podcast. I am your host, Scott Haskin, and here with me to talk about not only an album I know almost nothing about, but a band I know almost nothing about. My co-host from the Aerosmith Podcast, Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited. He is also the co-host of Backtracks Theme Music, and he is also the co-host of and the podcast. Well, God, this is exhausting. Corey Morissette, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Corey, how are you? I'm doing fine, but I'm wondering why you don't come out on the Aerosmith show with that kind of fire and that kind of enthusiasm. I do the intro to that show and I throw it to you and you're like, yeah, hi, it's me, Scott. <laughs> and then on your show, you're like, welcome to the Haskin cast. And it's fantastic. You need that energy on every show, Scott. I'll see. I'll see if I can boost it up. It depends on when you go to like, if you go to me from, if you go to John first and then to me, it's a lull. If you go to me first, I think I'm usually a little more energetic, but I'll monitor that. Okay. I'm going to make sure I go to you first from now on. There you go. Uh, you, God, you work a lot harder than I do in this business. You've got, uh, more podcasts than I do, and you do the production on everything. How do you, and you have a family. How do you find the time to do all this? I don't like my family. So I try and avoid them at, at all costs. So I'm usually up here tootling away on my computer. No, this, because this is fun because I, I, I like doing this kind of thing. And it's really not that much. You mentioned the uh, Aerosmith show, the Van Halen show, the movie show, and uh, now uh, a new show that I'm starting with Kevin Brown called the ultimate catalog clash, where we're going to take a band's uh, discography and we're going to, you know, we're going to break it down. And we're going to rate it uh, song by song. We actually have a rating system. We're going to rate it by music, lyrics, and production values. And we're going to come up with a final number at the end of it. So each episode is going to be the side of a record. So the first band we're doing is Phil Collins Genesis. We're not doing the whole Genesis discography because it's pretty big. We want to keep these uh, seasons to, you know, around 20 episodes. Mm-hmm. So we're starting with Phil Collins. So, uh, the first album was A Trick of the Tale, so episode one will be side A, episode two will be side B, then we'll give you our final grade on that record. Then we'll go to the second record, which is Wind and Withering, and so on and so forth. So I'm pretty excited about that show. I kind of lifted the uh, scoring from a Food Network show that my wife makes me watch, but I thought, you know, haven't seen that on a music podcast yet, so we thought we'd give it a go. Well, you're, you're typically very creative when it comes to finding new and exciting ways to do podcasts, which which I like. You know, the way that we do the Aerosmith podcast with our you know, our uh, mixtapes and then you've got and the podcast will rock where you just kind of, you know, you you say what you think and then you throw it out to the fans on Twitter and like you guys vote. Tell us what you think. And you you look at things that way. Uh, it, it's really it's fun and it's different and exciting in every way. You're you guys are getting uh, kind of on to the end of the Van Halen catalog. Have you decided uh, what you're going to do at that point? Yeah, our thoughts right now are we're going to maybe start a new season where we're we're going to do a different kind of theme every single week. So we have all the solo catalogs to get through. Mm. So the thinking is, you know, week one of a month will be a Dave solo cut. Week two will be a Sammy solo cut. Week three, we'll have a wheel, all wheels, of course. Week three will be a wheel that features uh, Wolfgang and Extreme. And, uh, you know, Michael Anthony has a couple tracks floating out there. Uh, Eddie has some a uh, couple of solo things. Put those on a wheel. That'll be week three. And then week four, do uh, a Van Halen influence. So uh, we'll have a whole wheel, and we're, we're actually reaching out to guys like Eric Senich to help us compile a wheel of songs and artists that inspired Van Halen. So, you know, you'll get some ZZ Top on there. You'll get some uh, Deep Purple, probably, like a whole bunch of stuff like that on a wheel. So week one, Dave, week two, Sammy, week three, Wolfie slash Extreme, week four, uh, an influence show. That'll be a lot of fun. Are you, are you Have you thought about doing uh, people who have covered Van Halen songs? Yep. Yeah, that would probably be on another wheel as well. Or even, and we can do newer bands that were influenced by Van Halen. Sure, yeah. Because uh, there's quite a bit of those out there. Well, I'm glad to hear the show's going to continue because it's it's one that I really enjoy listening to. And 
I'm not I'm not a huge fan of Van Halen, to be honest. It's more I enjoy your guys's appreciation for the music. I think that's that's what the sell is for me. And I've learned a lot about the band. I found some stuff I do like that I had never heard before, which is always nice. Um, that's one of the things I love about podcasts is being able to discover new things that just wouldn't come into my field of, of audio vision any other way. And uh, I was really excited when you wanted to talk about this band because I've never heard of them. And uh, it, it's so it's an exciting thing for me. And, and like I was telling you before we started recording, one of the reasons I started this show was to give exposure to things that people might not know, like like me, who are very much I live in an audio terrarium. I, I don't really venture out of what I've accepted into that world. So it's it's good for me, too. And uh, and hopefully for people to find some stuff they enjoy. How did you come across Thunder? Well, uh, their debut album uh, back in uh, 91 uh, had a pretty sizable hit in or sorry, 1990 had a sizable hit in Canada called Dirty Love. So I remember hearing that. And uh, at that time, uh, my parents owned a bar. And in the bar was a jukebox. And uh, every once in a while, they'd swap in new 45s. And every Sunday, we'd clean the bar and we'd just play a bunch of songs on the jukebox to pass the time. And this was one of my favorites that was on there. Uh, and then I picked up the album Backstreet Symphony. And I love this record from top to bottom. Uh, but then it kind of fell off thunder a little bit as it kind of went on. You know, this was 1990. Uh, grunge would be coming soon. And, and bands like this would kind of fall out of favor. They kind of got lumped into hair metal, which they never were. They're more kind of just a straight ahead rock group. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was actually Mitch LaFon. Uh, continuously tweeting and talking about Thunder. I'm like, you know what? I really did like that first record. You know, I should, you know, I got iTunes music now or Apple music. I should, you know, check out some other, uh, some other albums of theirs. And man, just top, great discography. Like if you download their, uh, their playlist, their iTunes playlist, um, they're, they're great track, every single one all the way down, including a couple of new albums. Uh, they just released an album last year called Dopamine that I was a very big fan of. And now Thunder is going back and they're reissuing, uh, their back catalog on vinyl, like a two, like this uh, record here, Backstreet Symphony, uh, has a brand new gold and silver vinyl set. Uh, you know, the first disc remastered and the second disc is like live cuts and uh, demos and B-sides and stuff. Really, really cool. So I'm glad to see that Thunder's still out there, still having fun uh, producing music. And uh, just the, the more I dig into them, the more I'm becoming a fan. I don't know a ton about them either, but uh, once I got, I fell down the rabbit hole, I haven't left yet. I'm still constantly listening to it. My kids are getting sick of hearing Thunder, to be honest with you. But <laughs> whenever I'm in a car, I pop on on the playlist. So Well, and you, and you can't send them outside to play because they'll just freeze as soon as they open the door uh, yeah. up in Saskatchewan. But, you know, that's that's the thing I, I, I like about you that I don't do myself. I, I'm really weird and I still haven't figured out why. Maybe I just I, I just like, you know, I don't spend a lot of time listening to music. So when I do, I like to stay in my comfort zone. But uh, I, I take a band like uh, Zebra. I absolutely loved Who's Behind the Door. I absolutely loved uh, Tell Me What You Want. And I, I've listened to those songs a thousand times each easily. But I never bothered to get into anything else they did. How could I love these two songs, the only two songs I know by the band so much, and just never be like, I bet there's more I'd love if I gave them a chance. Why I don't dig in and do it like you do, I have no idea. I've not figured that out about myself. Well, that's interesting because yeah, I'm the opposite. I fall down the rabbit hole. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I like this song. What else they got? Mm-hmm. And then I just throw it all in a playlist and listen to it. And you know, some of it doesn't hit with me, and, and a lot of it does land. And, and this is a band where it's like, Every record, I, I could pick out a handful of tracks that I absolutely love, mm-hmm. um, from all the way from Backstreet Symphony to All the Right Noises, which came out in 2021, and Dopamine, which came out in 2022. Uh, even an album like Robert Johnson's Tombstone from 2006, which has, has maybe the worst cover art 
in the history of bad cover art, but there's great fucking tracks on that. Like it's just good, good music. So uh, I, I like rediscovering a band like that. And I'm very thankful that you're giving me an opportunity here to get maybe hopefully a couple other people interested in the thunder. Cause they're a good band who I think deserves some due. Well, I I'm glad you brought them up when we recorded our Cinderella episodes. And uh, you've mentioned a couple of times, like, when are we going to do this? <laughs> so I could tell that you're very excited about it. I'm glad that we could find this time to sit down and do it between our, our schedules. And uh, shout out to Mitch Lafon, by the way, who uh, to me is, is just one of the greatest podcasters out there, uh, really cares about sharing music and, and helping bands that uh, deserve their credit get out there and help uh, you know, people discover them. And for shouting out uh, the uh, Uriah Heap, the Magicians podcast at one point, which was a, a very nice surprise to me. Um, I, uh, to be fair to Corey, I did actually challenge myself. I remember talking to Terry T-Bone Mathley about this and uh, when he came on the show and um, I challenged myself to actually get the Zebra's first album, which those two songs came from. And really listen and review the whole thing. And as it turned out, I really enjoyed the whole album. Just if, if you love that 80s style of music that, you know, it's not quite British New Wave. It's not quite rock and roll. It's somewhere in the middle. Um, that is an excellent album to listen to. So when I do actually take the time to make that connection, I found some very positive things. I just don't do it enough. Mm -hmm. Well, maybe here's your motivation to do it more. Well, I did it last night with this band. Um, so normally uh, when I'm on other shows and I hear things for the first time, I, I get the the experience. Since I only play a clip on this show of the song, um, I actually went and listened to the full album last night, one song twice, which we'll, we'll get to, and uh, while I was doing all the notes for the show. So we're going to get into the music in a minute. But first, uh, speaking of album covers, let's, um, let's talk about this. Can you uh, can you see this up on your screen? Yes, I can. Okay, what the hell? <laughs> they love this cover. Uh, I was reading about the uh, about the artwork. The, the concept, uh, which was proposed by guitarist and songwriter Luke Morley, uh, was it's supposed to it depicts a tramp and a female in an alleyway. Um, they the record label hated it because it doesn't have the band on it anywhere, but they like the concept of, you know, a backstreet symphony. And yeah, like I said, this is a band where their cover art is, is not their strong suit. <laughs> I'm, I'm imagining they hired her for backing vocals and, and not based on the, uh, the hooker outfit that she's wearing. Uh, but she... it, it always reminded me of spinal tap, like, oh, yeah. uh, you know, uh, the, a spinal tap record would have this kind of cover, right? Yes, she's got that sort of Tracy Lord's uh, 80s hair and, and kind of the mm -hmm. attitude also, that look on her face. Then you have a, a conductor who has, he's looking at the camera while his, his arm is up with the baton, almost like, don't you fucking dare. It's <laughs> what I like, don't come over here and interrupt what I'm doing. He's about to conduct the Backstreet Symphony, you see. Yes. With, with the hooker uh, and the tramp. Uh, with, with the liquor bottle leg on the ground. She's ready for her cue. Yeah. <laughs> she definitely is. And then and then you've got a bum on the ground who's looking up at the conductor, uh, very, very uh, casually just laying on some boxes and things with this nice little table with some uh, fresh, freshish looking flowers. It, it's just a, a really, uh, it's one of those things where I have to wonder, okay, so how much of this did the artists know when they came up with the concept? Did they just get the title and they're like, okay, here's what we could do. 
or it, it, it's you it's know, so weird. You never know. Yeah, it, I, I can say having worked on a vast number of album covers myself and working with graphic artists, it's such an interesting process because you're as the artist, your interpretation of the music versus what their interpretation of the music or the concept, depending on how much information they have when they start working on it, it could be incredibly different. Um, with Kelly Kinkart, who does all my albums, um, I I will often come up with a, a general concept and sometimes I'll draw her some hideous stick figure thing and then she'll just turn it into some unbelievable magic. And then there's times where I'm like, I have no idea. Or she'll, she's like, yeah, I see where you're going. Do you mind if I try something that has nothing to do with what you're talking about? <laughs> uh, every time, uh, an absolute gem. So I, I never worry, you know, when it comes to her. Um, but yeah, it, it's fascinating. I mean, it's certainly, though, I will say it is an album cover that if I were in a record store, and I'm old, so I can say like a record store, and, you know, I'm walking down the aisles, if I see this on the wall, I'm probably going to stop and go, what is this? Which is the mm -hmm. whole point of an album cover. It absolutely is. Now, is it an, a record or an album cover that's going to make you stop and say, I need to buy this because the cover art is so cool? Probably not. But no. it is going to grab your attention. Right. But what it's going to make me do is it's going to make me walk over and pick it up and go, okay, what is this? What can I learn about this that might interest me? Nowadays, we can research things, right? Like we could take a picture of it, go home, listen to some sound clips, decide if we want to buy it or not. Back yeah. in the day you could maybe ask the record store if they have a single that they can play off of it. If they're not like, screw you kid, then maybe they'll play it. Um, or, you know, you could check with your friends, but, but we had limited resources. So it was kind of like if the album cover and the song titles didn't draw you in immediately, you're probably going to forget about it. Yeah. And that's, that's the hard thing. Now take it, take, I know we've never, we don't talk about album covers very much on uh, backtracks Aerosmith revisited, but take a take an album like Rocks. Rocks to me, it's it's an interesting concept. It works with the title, but it's kind of a generic looking. Like I don't know if I would necessarily pay attention to that if I walked into a record store. See, and to me, I found it kind of striking because it's you know just, just the color scheme they use for it. I like mm -hmm. the image of the five diamonds mm -hmm. uh, laid out on the front there, and it's totally different from Toys in the Attic, which is yes. this big uh, illustrated uh, cover, right? So mm -hmm. uh, to me, it, it it kind of suggests a harder edge. Like, especially if you're familiar with with your other uh, three albums, it's like you're getting something different here. It's, uh, right. I, I think Rocks is one of my favorite cover arts of all time, actually. Okay, if you didn't know who the band was, like let's say their name didn't appear on the front and you were just walking through the record store and you saw that up on the wall, would you go over and check it out? I would, yeah. yeah. Again, because just the way it's kind of laid out and the, the color scheme I found really kind of worked. I do like, like to the me, color it's scheme. very, very, yeah, it grabs you, I think, right away. Yeah, I, I do love the color schema. It's it's very uh, striking and vibrant, I think. I'm glad they didn't use muted colors like they did with Toys in the Attic, because Toys in the Attic is yeah. really like a faded, almost like a 19, early 1900s Alice in Wonderland book that's been sitting up in an attic with stuff on top of it for a while. It's just really faded and muted. And, and I think mm -hmm. Rocks is just incredibly striking and vibrant. But like color, like concept wise, it's it's like I like the vibrancy, but when I look at the cover, I'm like, yeah, okay. And I don't I don't necessarily know I would have walked over and checked it out. Mm -hmm. But that's but that's again like it, like we were talking before we started recording. The beauty of music is the same as it is for for art and uh, of any kind, whether it's drawings or you know a play or whatever. Um, it, it things strike people differently, 
and yeah, that's 100%. that's the beauty of it. You know, otherwise every every band would be either a hit or a miss for one hundred percent. It would just be so boring. If and it would become so formulated. You know, mm-hmm. okay, what does everybody like about this? All right, let's just do that. You know, um, I found I found some of these song titles were pretty interesting, and I thought, well, this is going to be. Uh, I, I wondered if there were a couple of covers on here. And there is one towards the end of the album that we'll get to. Uh, She's so fine. I actually wondered if that was a, um, was it George Harrison? But that was She's So High. Uh, yeah, and th- that was a George Harrison. Was it? That was like a 90s song, wasn't it? Yeah. Al Bachman, didn't he do a She's So High? I think so, yeah. Yeah, so I, so I had the title wrong. But as soon as, like, that was the first thing that came into my mind. But there is actually one cover song uh, that we'll get to. It's the second to the last song in the album. Um, but let's dig into the music a little bit. You ready, Corey? I am absolutely ready. I've been looking forward to this all week. Excellent. Well, here is our first song, and it is She's So Fine. this is a good album opener and before we get into the song itself i want to talk a little bit about the production um andy taylor from duran duran was the producer on this album and i don't know how much production experience he had in 1990 but i will say the production on this album is untouchable oh i could not agree more andy taylor really an unsung hero duran duran he doesn't get the, the credit he deserves and his solo career was pretty good too mm-hmm. but uh everything like that dirty lick the vocals are nice and crisp and what did you think of those drums like i love that big boom and kick drum and then that that snare sound you know that you had that kind of late 80s early 90s snare sound mm-hmm. but it doesn't go too far like uh, hair metal bands like skid row and stuff like that they wanted like a a big cannon of a snare drum as opposed to kind of that whip crack snare drum mm-hmm. this is kind of in the middle it, it yeah. doesn't cross that line for me but it sounds to me, I, I love that fucking snare sound. Well, you know what it is, is is they were going in bands like that were going for that high snare attack. Like, let's really just hit that attack heavy. This snare has a lot of bottom end on it, which I prefer. You know, yeah. I, I don't like it to crack my ears. I don't like to, you know, kind of like shrivel down every time I know a big hit is coming. I like to be able to just enjoy it. And you need a good, well-rounded snare, especially for this style of music. If it, Because the drums are the the bridge between rhythm and melody. And um, you you need to be able to have a good variety of drum sounds to be able to match that. And if your snare is too high, you're already killing what the toms are going to sound like. You're, you don't have a well-rounded kit. And so uh, I think this, this snare works. That kick is huge. I love the sound. It's definitely not uh, over-compressed like they were doing in, in the mid-80s. And uh, even into the early 90s. So I, I really appreciate, especially the drum production. Guitars sound beautiful and crisp. Vocals are stunning. I, I, I couldn't say more about how much I love the sound of this album. Danny Bowes is a tremendous singer. We were talking before the call about singers who would like no life to their voice. Mm-hmm. Uh, Danny Bowes to me is the exact opposite. 
And he he sells these lines so well. Like it was early in the evening. I was waiting for a train. I was thinking to myself as I watched the falling rain, I need love, but I don't know where to get it. Like, you know, everybody can kind of relate to that that mm-hmm. feeling, right? And oh, just the way he sings it, I, I think is so great. And if we can get, get to the chorus, he's really soaring on the chorus to this one too. Yeah, it's uh, he, he's definitely a, a very passionate singer. It's funny because before I did anything, because uh, I, I knew I was going to listen to the whole album and I had plenty of time to get the notes and the album cover art and all that stuff. And uh, so I just put on the first song. And the first thing I thought was, is this a Paul Rogers project? He sounds very similar to Paul Rogers, kind of similar to John Lawton from Uriah Heep and the Butterfly Ball. And um I, I thought, wow, he, he sounds right in the vein of those singers. But more importantly, he has a personality. He doesn't just have the voice. He has that personality. I actually like his singing better than Paul Rogers. I'm not a huge fan of Paul Rogers. I think um, okay. I, I loved his work with The Firm. I did a review of the first album, and I absolutely love the way he sounds on that. I, I just I find his uh, his vocals for me to be I just think he's too limited in his range for what I prefer to listen to in a singer. So it kind of limits his dynamics and that. Interestingly, he was a, a he was on the list to replace Ian Gillen in Deep Purple. Oh, and I I've always wondered how that would have worked. That would have been their catalog, I think, would have been limiting. It's kind of like when Paul Rogers joined Queen mm-hmm. uh, for that album and a couple of tours, yeah. uh, which I saw them actually in Minneapolis on that tour. Uh, some stuff Paul Rogers does extremely well. Yeah. But there's some songs from the Queen catalog he just can't do. Like he doesn't. Yeah. Paul Rogers doesn't do quiet uh, very well, whereas a guy like Danny Bowes from Thunder, uh, when we get to a song like Love Walked In, the beginning of that song, uh, you know, uh, he he does that so beautifully to me. He has much better range. I agree with you totally on Paul Rogers. He's very limited uh, kind of in, in the music that he pulls off very well. What he could do, he does incredibly well. I, I'm not bashing the guy by any means. I think he's fantastic in his lane. I just find that that he really doesn't have a, the broader range of singers that I'm used to listening to. I mean, you talk about a singer like Phil Collins, who actually is an incredible vocalist. You know, there's, Huge there's a range. lot he can do. Huge yeah. range, yeah. I it's, was just, because uh, I'm doing the, the early Phil Collins stuff, there's a, one whole album where he sings almost the entire thing in falsetto, mm-hmm. like just in that super high register, which I, I was kind of surprised to hear because I'm used to Phil Collins from like No Jacket Required. Right, yeah. Which uh, I think is his best record, right? Mm-hmm. And you know, he's all over the, like he got such huge range on that, but you know, he can keep it high, he can take her low. Uh, tremendous range, whereas a guy like we're talking about Tom Petty maybe doesn't quite have that range. And uh, mm-hmm. certainly uh, Paul Rogers in the same vein, when you go to a Queen show, you know, he can't do uh, Love of My Life, right. right? Like Freddie Mercury could, but he could do Hammer to Fall, like a big rocker like that. And and that really makes me wonder why that connection was made. Why was he wanted for Deep Purple, knowing that they would be walking in with that challenge? It just seems like such an odd thing to 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 go beyond, hey, what about this guy? Eh. I, I think he's I don't think he'd work. For, like, it really surprises me that he's so sought after considering that that issue, you know? Well, I, I know in Queen's case, it's because he was one of Freddie Mercury's favorite vocalists. Mm-hmm. So they knew him and they liked him. Uh, and I think uh, Brian May mentioned that they wanted to play a bunch of free songs and bad company songs, oh, too. Okay. It wasn't just we want Paul Rogers to do Queen. Mm-hmm. We want to play all right now. And uh, feel like making love and stuff like that. So it was kind of a, a cool trade off. Okay, well that makes sense. I, I guarantee going into purple, they would not have been doing free songs. They 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 just would not have. <laughs> um, yeah, interesting. But but as a as a huge credit to Phil Collins, I'll throw out one more example of uh, if 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 people want to listen to the amazing vocals that he really has. And I can't remember which album it is. You'll probably know. But Snowbound 
is, is a song that, uh, man, when I, when I listen to what he sings in that chorus is just unbelievable. Yeah. And I don't remember what album that's from actually. So you, you caught me off guard on that one. It's rare. That, that a, it's rare. Corey doesn't know. Cause your, your music history and trivia is, I, I would never go against you would anyway. Cause I don't know anything. I just, I just my, know the music. My philosophy is dazzling with bullshit. <laughs> well, it comes across very well, I'll say. Uh, let me see if I could find the chorus here. And if it takes until forever and a day, I gotta make that woman mine. If I don't tell her, then I wish my love away. She's so fine. She's so fine. You know, I have to give another production credit here. The backing vocals are really, they're not in the foreground. They're very much just thickening and a light harmony on the lead. And I really respect and appreciate that decision. Me too. Uh, You mentioned Andy Taylor. Just, uh, I'm not sure how many albums uh, he produced before this, if any, but he knocks this out of the park and everything is just mixed so well. Everything sounds fantastic. Uh, the bass uh, isn't too loud. It isn't too soft. It's right where it needs to be. Uh, drums are maybe a little more booming than you kind of expect, uh, which mm-hmm. is great because it fits uh, It fits the songs, right? Like, you know, this is a big booming kind of rock track to to kick uh-huh. off a big booming rock record. Uh, so it, it all works for me. I love She's So Fine. And, you know, one thing that for me is is usually a sticking point in the song is the hi-hat. You know, when you're playing a big open hi-hat like he does on a lot of this album, um, it, it's really dangerous how much of that you put in the mix because you can drown out a lot of frequencies by having that hi-hat being too loud. And the more open it is, the, the more difficult that becomes. Another excellent production point. I think they rode that fader absolutely perfectly. Oh, yeah. Yeah, 100%. I'm just kind of looking at Andy Taylor's uh, bio here. Uh, you know, after... Uh, you know, leaving Duran Duran after about six years, he had a solo career. He had a hit uh, song called Take It Easy from the uh, movie American Anthem, which I got to watch that movie again because I want to do it for Backtrack theme music because I love that song mm-hmm. so much. But, you know, he wrote some stuff for Rod Stewart um, and then he kind of went into production full time. Uh, and I think uh, Backstreet Symphony is the first album he ever produced. Oh, wow. OK, but he must have I, I would imagine he learned a lot during his time in Duran Duran and Power Station that maybe he hung around the engineer and, mm-hmm. you know, hung out with the producer, like really paid attention because to come out, if this is your first production credit and you're coming out right out of the gate with something like this, um, you've done your homework. Yeah, I'm trying to think, uh, who produced uh, Duran Duran? Colin Thurston uh, did the first record. Uh, who did Rio? Mm-hmm. Colin Thurston again. Seven the Ragged Tiger was Alex Aitken. Duran Duran were listed as producer starting with uh, Seven and the Ragged Tiger in 1983. So he probably oh, would have okay. been involved with that and then Arena mm-hmm. and everything that kind of came after. Well, he certainly had some good good work to study from. I mean, their their first couple albums were just stunning. I haven't I haven't seen them. I was really hoping that they would do one of the Lost 80s live tours, and they haven't. But I've talked to people who have gone and seen them in more recent years and said they're even better than they were back in the 80s. I've heard that too. Unfortunately, Andy Taylor, uh, very sick right now uh, with cancer. Uh, we're not oh. quite sure. Uh, he couldn't even attend the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame uh, ceremony when oh. Duran Duran got inducted last year. He was too sick. Um, so he's what just kind of, yeah, uh, kind of living on borrowed time right now, which is unfortunate because he was a tremendous talent. Was he part of that uh, reunion tour? 
Uh, the Did first one. With him? Yeah. yeah. He, uh, for like a, a year or two. And then he left again. And then it was, it's just been the original four ever since. But there were a, a couple of one offs as well uh, mixed in there. Uh, it's kind of like Fire and Water with Andy Taylor. Uh, and you get that with some bands, right? Kind of the magic that made the five piece work so well. There's that combustible element. That was Andy Taylor. And he would leave and he would come back and he would leave. And it was a whole big thing. Interesting well, band I mean, dynamic. If you if you think about it, other than dwindling album sales, there's always a reason that bands break up. And it's it's usually because of some kind of personal dissension or, you know, disagreements in the business or whatever. And there's always got to be somebody that instigates it, whether it's, you know, with with ill will or not. And I don't know what the case was here, but there, there's it has to start somewhere. And uh, you you know you you look at the early '80s and you think about a band like Duran Duran, like Hungry Like the Wolf and Rio, and all these songs that they had that were just mega hits. You'd think these guys are going to go on forever, and you know none of those bands did. No, they were like one of the biggest bands in the world when uh, Andy Taylor and Roger Taylor uh, at the time, like '95, when they left. Mm -hmm. uh, You know, they're they're at the top of their game. They lost two members. It was kind of kind of interesting. Roger came back. On the first reunion tour, and he has stayed ever since. He's been the drummer ever since then. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, uh, poor Andy. Uh, well, I don't know what it is, but uh, just didn't quite get along with uh, with Nick and Simon Lebon and uh, and those guys. It's a shame, but it's a, but it does show something amazing of how people who can't get along can still write amazing music together. Absolutely, those uh, first few Duran Duran albums, uh, they're kind of untouchable. Yeah. Yeah, I do. I have to check. I wonder if uh, if the drummer is still playing those Simmons drums in their current set or if he switched to acoustic or what they're doing now, because that I mean, listening to Phil's like in Hungry Like the Wolf, where he did some really nice dramatic fills. I I just have to wonder what that what that would sound like on an acoustic kit. It just wouldn't be the same. No, and I'm trying to think last time I saw a live clip of theirs uh, was from the reunion tour. and He was still playing electric kit. I I think it's maybe a combination right now, but don't quote me on that. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure. I, I would imagine a combination wouldn't be out of order unless they're really keeping in tradition with the newer stuff they've been writing, which I haven't heard. But I, I, I think of like uh, Alex Van Halen when he had his kind of hybrid electronic yeah. acoustic kit, you know, something like that would, would probably work. Um, but this is a pretty good song. Um, I, I really I, I think that it's it's interesting enough that there's enough changes in the riffs. Um, it it kind of keeps it moving. You know, because uh, they could be a band that's that's very like, OK, we just have our three different riffs and that's going to be the song and we're going to throw it solo. We'll repeat the chorus twice. And um, but I, I think this song has a, a good variety of riffs and it moves pretty well. And I do like the vocal on this one. Vocals. Great. I love the guitar solo on this one, too. It's not mm-hmm. he, do, he doesn't overplay it. It fits the yeah. song very, very well. Uh, Luke Morley, to me, is one of the most underrated uh, rock guitarists uh, from this period. Uh, and, and this is a perfect example. And like you mentioned right up the hop, I think this is a great album opener. You put it on the turntable and you know exactly what you're going to get. Yes. Yes, very much so. And, and it really gives you, I think, a good idea for what to expect through the rest of the album. Could not no. agree more. Well, let's get into the second song. This is the one that you mentioned, the, the one that you first heard. How did this end up on a 45 in uh, in America if they were a, a European band? This is pretty obscure for their first album. They seem to get a lot of promotion. Well, this was released as a single uh, in the States. Uh, Dirty Love, uh, I, I think it charted. It debuted at number 185 on the Billboard, two, uh, Billboard 200, and it peaked at 114. And spent 10 weeks on the chart. So there was a video for it, I remember, on MTV and much music here in Canada. Um, so, yeah, EMI just put it out as a single. 
I, I don't know if She's So Fine was released in America. That was the first single in the UK uh, from mm-hmm. this record. Dirty Love is number two, but I remember it it, it charting and, and being quite popular in my neck of the woods back in 1991. I could definitely see She's So Fine as as being a, a great single to release. Um, but uh, yeah, that's interesting. I, uh, I knew some friends who did a uh, film for a 48-hour film festival called Dirty Love, but it was not the same as this at all. <laughs> It, it was actually a, a nice little parody. This um, this this girl uh, is uh, you know tr- trying to get with this guy, and uh, all. It, it, so she puts on this French maid outfit and everything, kind of similar to the to the album cover. Uh, but basically, all he wants to do is uh, make her clean his house. <laughs> <laughs> so it's See, kind of a, a fun little parody, you know. I, I love "Dirty Love" because it's the anti love song. Every mm-hmm. '80s uh, glam metal record had to have. Uh, either a I, I love you baby song or I, I love you and I miss you, you're gone type. This is I hate you, fuck off. Uh, I don't need your dirty love. I don't want you touching me. Uh, just totally different than what you would get in this time. It's it's the anti-love ballad and it's perfect. Yes, yes, very much so. Well, let's check it out. Yeah, I mean, I tend to think that they wrote this for me to sing to my ex, but uh, <laughs> this was everybody has that one ex. <laughs> this was that, before that, her. Yeah. Oh, oh, everybody can relate. Oh, uh, this is one of my all-time favorite songs. I'm, I'm going to be perfectly honest. We talked about Cinderella and Gypsy Road, mm-hmm. and I just gushed. Yeah. This is me gushing again. I love that riff. Mm-hmm. I love those guitars. I love that bend they put in there. Uh, Danny Bowes sounds amazing. When we get into the chorus, the chorus is one of my favorite rock choruses of all time. Lyrically, it's fantastic. Like a cheap suit, you were all over me. Mm-hmm. Like everybody had that X, right? Where oh, it's just yeah. like, I don't need your dirty love. I don't want you touching me. Fuck off. Go away. Mm-hmm. And, and the fact that it's not every rose has its thorn or some weepy poison bullshitty ballad. It's the anti-love ballad. It's oh, I'm so much. It's so great. Well, I can see why they got roped into the hair metal category because musically they're they're very much on par with bands like Cinderella and Poison with the the style of music that we're hearing, the type of riff rock that they're playing was very much what was going on with those bands at the time. Uh, so I can see it from that standpoint. Uh, I don't know what the band looks like, so visually I have no idea, if, you know, but uh, but I could see it musically. Um, and that probably would have worked to their benefit because if they were, you know, if people were saying like, hey, if you like Cinderella, you might like Thunder, you know, that that could definitely help them. I mean, this album debuted yeah. on the charts at what, 29? In the UK or in North the, In the UK. UK, I think it was a top 30. Yeah. yeah. So, And that's debuting. That means they just showed up on the chart at 29. They didn't work their way up. So they're, you know, obviously their singles 
you know, whatever had been released by the time the album came out had done well enough to get them that notoriety. That says a lot about an unheard of band coming out with their first album, debuting that high on any chart. That's a big deal, especially in the 90s, because you had this was when we were starting to get tons and tons of bands showing up on the scene. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, it, you, you could you could throw a, a a block of ice and hit one. And it's not easy to throw a block of ice. I don't know why I use that term, but <laughs> but I mean, there, there was just there was so much now flooding the market that to come out. That's a big deal. It really is. And I think it's the strength of the signals, uh, singles, right? Mm-hmm. First single was She's So Fine. This was the second single released uh, February 1990 uh, in the UK. And, uh, you know, at this time, I think, that, you know, this is what the uh, uh, European audiences were craving. Like, you know, the big uh, uh, Sunset Strip bands mm-hmm. uh, were very big overseas. Uh, you had mega bands like Van Halen, who were huge overseas. Kiss were still really big at this time. Um, and here's just a straight ahead uh, European uh, rock group. Uh, that had a couple of good singles and a really interesting album cover. And it did quite well. And they still do quite well uh, in London. They were always kind of a, a very popular band uh, in the UK. Just couldn't really break out anywhere else. But this is a song that I think should have been a much bigger hit in North America than it was. Like, it, it charted. It did okay. They got them some opportunities. They opened for ZZ Top. They played Monsters of Rock and Donington, that kind of thing. But um, th- I, I feel like the strength of this song here, they should have been a much bigger deal over here than they were. Well, you know, by the, by 1990, and I'm trying to to really place myself back in the time. Like when I was listening to the album last night, that was the thing for me was what remember life in 1990. So I graduated high school in 90 and um, I was still buying music on cassette. You know, CDs were kind of a new thing at that point. Not everything was out on CD. Uh, this would have been an import anyway. So it would have been like twenty five, thirty dollars. Um, if I if I had even known about it, because I wasn't I wasn't really a radio fan. I didn't listen to the radio a whole lot. Um, but just thinking back in that time, I think what probably happened to them is they just got drowned out by everything else. You know, there was so much yeah. that was being played. Poison, uh, Cinderella, they would have been getting rotations every hour, whereas this band might have got one every four to six hours. So the exposure and- wouldn't have been there as much. And they weren't getting the the tours like they weren't going out with Bon Jovi, right? Yeah, or, or, or Poison or or Warrant or those guys. They were getting you know uh, Heart, mm-hmm. uh, ZZ Top. Uh, those were the tours they were kind of on. So uh, those bands in the in 1990 were still drawing okay, but they weren't drawing what Poison did on Flesh and Blood or Bon Jovi did right. on New Jersey or yeah. Motley Crue and Doctor Feelgood. Those kind of tours, absolutely. And I would say that those are kind of not really well matched groups either. Uh, I could kind of see ZZ Top. Heart, I, I don't know that they really fit in well with Heart. What do you think? Oh, at this time, no, uh, because Heart, uh, this is their big, uh, where they went all in on outside writers and ballads, and they had songs like uh, Alone and mm-hmm. Will You Be There in the Morning and that kind of yeah. thing. So yeah, like a little bit of a mismatch, I think, on that. Yeah, so I don't think that helped them either. Um, so I, I just I just think that it was, you know, it was the timing of it. Um, had they come out a couple of years earlier, 87, 88, probably would have been a bigger difference. Um, they would have been competing more with Whitesnake, I think. Yep. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think it, that's what it really comes down to, because it's not it's rarely how good the music is. It's about how you can, you know, cut through the muck and, and get heard and get that notoriety to get your music a chance. Your music has to back it up. If you could cut through, you got to be able to deliver. But it, Whitesnake is a really great suggestion, actually. If these guys had opened for oh, Whitesnake around this time. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
that's a perfect pairing. Yeah. I mean, you're talking still of the night. Here I go again, crying yeah. in the rain. That would have been perfect for these guys. Yeah, hundred percent. That, that would. Have, where were you in 1990? You could have suggested that White Snake take Thunder out with them. <laughs> uh, I was I was uh, graduating high school, trying to figure out what the hell I was going to do next. <laughs> I was I, I had just joined a uh, a cover band actually that summer, and we were doing uh, we we were doing like Poison and and uh, Cinderella and Motley Crue and stuff like. I didn't know anything about those bands because I didn't listen to them. So. I was trying to learn an 80 song set list to never play live. I think we did like five rehearsals and that was it. Um, we were doing songs like If I Close My Eyes Forever and just like stuff I would have never listened to, you know. Uh, right. So that's uh, that was that was my summer of 90. <laughs> I, I can just see you with a big flowing mane well, yeah. uh, playing If I Could Close My Eyes Forever by Lita, Lita Ford. That would have been something. Yeah, I, I had to try and move my head just to make it interesting, but I, I pretty much just sat there slumped over. And then uh, then I got an invite to join um, a, a more progressive metal band, which was uh, the the brother of the bass player for another progressive metal band I was in uh, the year before um, had, had invited me to join their band. So we we started rehearsing. We did a lot, but never played live, just never got that far. And uh, it was one of those things where it, it was more about having a case of beer before starting practice and then not being able to play the songs than it was actually being serious. And I just got kind of tired of that. And, I got gotcha. you. Uh, I rewrote some parts and, and stuff for them and they were all into it. And then they're like, well, I don't want to play this now. And all right. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> well, I got to tell you, I got to ask you, Scott, though, because it's like an itch in my brain. You yeah. stopped the song right before the iconic chorus. Can we listen to the chorus of Dirty Love? Not only can we, Corey, but we will. Oh my God. I love that chorus. It's enough trying to live with the memory. Love that line. <laughs> I'd like the lyrics. I don't care for the chorus. Really? Yeah. I, I don't, I don't often like when bands go to the na 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 thing. Like that was fine in the sixties and, and anything after that, it's kind of, I, I just kind of feel like you're, you're writing intelligent lyrics. You probably could have put something there that was better or, or make a half chorus. I like the na 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 because it's the na na na. Hey, 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 goodbye type thing. Right? Like, Right. Yeah, I get the inference. Yeah, for sure. Uh, but but it's just it, I don't know the whole chorus, like other than the lyrics, musically, it just felt kind of generic to me. It actually reminded me and I don't know who the band was that did it. But do you remember? Did you ever watch Married with Children? Yep. OK, there was an episode where Kelly Bundy got to be in a rock video and she kept screwing up. And so they kept like, OK, now you can do this. And then she would screw that up and they would move her to it. They ended up just chaining her to a fence so that she couldn't do anything wrong. Right. The song that they played, uh, that kind of reminds me of this, just very straightforward rock, uh, no frills kind of uh, thing. Um, the only thing that sounded really different was the singer. But um, yeah, I, I don't know. This song for me, it just didn't, it didn't really grip me. Oh, well, could not disagree more. This is one of my favorite songs of all time. Uh, I, I can't find a fault with it at all. From the riff to the stank, it's got the appropriate stank level. It's not too much, it's not mm -hmm. too low perfect lyrically i think it's amazing i love that it's a song about uh some broad you're trying to get out of your life and telling her to fuck off i think that's fantastic yeah i love the concept of it uh for but but here's i think an important a, a part where we should talk about our tastes in music 
um, for me, and uh, this is why I never really got into bands like Poison and, and Cinderella a whole lot, apart from a couple of songs here and there, um, is that I, I'm more used to progressive music. So I listen to a lot of Emerson Lake and Palmer, um, a band called Gamelon that I covered earlier uh, this year on the show or last year, um, Purple, um, you know, bands like that, that that really had multi layers in the songs went to a lot of just non non traditional parts, you know, crazy, wild, whatever. Uh, that's King Crimson would be another example. Um, so that's the music that I really grew up with and listened to, but uh, but also a lot of Motown. So I do have some more of that like basic structured songwriting, but it's it's more the Motown stuff, which was really all about feeling. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is a kind of music that just the style of it really never gripped me a whole lot. But for you, this is kind of your bread and butter. This is in the wheelhouse. Like you mentioned progressive rock. That's not uh, Emerson, Lake and Palmer was not a band I got into at all. You probably really like the first few Phil Collins records uh, from Genesis because it's very much uh, progressive and proggy and that kind of stuff. I'm very much straight ahead. I'm a simple man, Scott. Mm-hmm. I'm not as complex as you. Uh, give me some kick-ass guitars, some drums, some cool lyrics and a great sounding front man. And I'm all in 100%. So to me, that that's the beauty. The simplicity is what the beauty of a band like Thunder is for me. Whereas where you get, and even Deep Purple, I like kind of more of their straight ahead stuff anyway. But when they get into the more uh, progressive stuff is when I kind of tune out. And this early uh, Genesis has been the same thing. When they're, yeah. they're mixing styles and mixing time signatures and, you know, lyrically, you know, going on and on about, you know, a Scottish Lord and all this other shit. You know, I, I I tune out because to me it just sounds pretentious. Give me just yeah. some straight ahead rock and roll that I could just you know sit back with a cold beer on a hot day and enjoy. And, and that's kind of where I yeah. come from. See, and I and I will say that Thunder is very good at exactly that. I think they're they're incredibly talented for that style of music. Uh, shockingly, I have not gotten into the older Genesis albums. Um, I have Foxtrot. I've listened to it once or twice, but for some reason, I, I don't. Maybe it's the timing of when I heard it. But I've just never really dug in. There's certain songs I've heard that I absolutely love. Like I mentioned Snowbound or um, uh, The Brazilian is another one that I absolutely love. Incredible instrumental. Mm-hmm. Um, but in, in general, I've never really dug into their their older stuff. I actually like more their 80s stuff like Abacab and, and, and Duke and you know albums like that. So it's, it's really weird. Like I, I don't understand my own musical taste. I, I will never, ever be able to explain how I work to anyone because I'm kind of all over the place. I love uh, I, I listen to a lot of African rhythms or, or Japanese rhythms. Um, I listen to music that was recorded in caves. But then I can also come out and appreciate the occasional Dream Theater song, even though I'm not uh, I don't really listen to them much. I, I'm really all over the place, Corey. <laughs> well, that's the beauty of music, because you can be all over the place and you're not wrong. Whatever yeah. speaks to you speaks to you. And that's fantastic. That's the great thing about music. And if a song hits for someone and doesn't hit for somebody else, that's mm-hmm. OK. The fact you can yeah. get on a on a podcast and talk. Uh, intelligently about it and and just why you like it and why you don't like it i think is one of the great things about this format oh i absolutely agree and 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 it's it's nice to to talk to people that you can have that open discussion with and be able to say okay that's that's awesome that you love this here's why i don't or whatever and not be you know not feel like well i can't really say what i think like i was as as you know i was a guest on the uh, tom petty project kevin brown's wonderful tom petty show and i'm not a fan of tom petty but he invited me to come on the show. He challenged me to listen to eight songs and uh, had had a great time talking to him about what I liked and what I didn't like. And he was very respectful of of my uh, my feelings. And uh, that's that's what really works for me, you know, to have these kind of discussions because people really get get so 
antagonistic. Like if you don't like what I like, then you're wrong and, and they need validation through music. I don't understand it. I don't either. Uh, it happens all the time. And I, I look at, you know, Van Halen fandom, right? Uh, there's that whole section that David Lee Roth bust. Van Halen died for me after 1984, which is idiotic mm -hmm. because Eddie was still in the band. Alex was yeah. still in the band, Michael Anthony, all that kind of stuff. But they're turning themselves off to potentially enjoying a whole new era of music. Metallica fans do the same thing. Everything yeah. after Injustice sucked. Well, no, if you actually listen to it and give it a chance, you might find something in the new stuff that you like. Because right. this new album that they got out now is actually pretty good. Mm -hmm. uh, when, when you listen to it objectively, put all that fucking bias aside. Enjoy what you enjoy. And it's okay. My kid loves Nickelback. I took her to a Nickelback concert. Uh, to me, they're about as generic uh, as you can get uh, for music. Just lifeless, just uh, boring. And But you know what? She had the time of her life. And I had fun watching her have fun. And that's fantastic. I'm not going to tell her she's wrong. I'm just going to tell you you're wrong, Scott, because Dirty Love by Thunder is a fucking classic. <laughs> Well, and, and, you know, I heard that a lot with Uriah Heep. There's the, Uriah Heep ended after David Byron left the band or, you know, got fired. And, you know, well, there, the, he was there for, what, seven or eight albums. The current singer has been there for 30 years. Yeah. You know, <laughs> uh, but, but he's, not the, he's not the true singer of the band or so many people are like, well, there's no life in Deep Purple after Richie Blackmore. And I, right. ACDC fans do the same thing. ACDC yeah. fans, Bowden Bond Scott died. ACDC died. They went on and had a Hall of Fame career with Brian Johnson. Their best album came after Bon Scott died, arguably. Their biggest, for sure, came out back in black. So okay, but why why, did, why uh, torture yourself by you know denying yourself more yeah. potential music from a band you love? I don't get it. And, and judging other people for thinking yeah. differently. But okay, so let's, let's just say for a second, let's imagine that uh, David Lee Roth never left Van Halen. Wouldn't the band naturally be progressing into different styles and doing different things like Metallica did? I mean, mm -hmm. they're not doing battery at the at the beginning of every album anymore. They're doing, you know, a, a lot more introspective music and and different things. Band is going to evolve no matter what, whether you change the members or not. Their style is going to change. What they learn on the tours, what they do in solo projects, what new music comes into their their field of vision, um, it's going to evolve and change. And and people, I don't understand. I I could I could say, okay, I didn't like this new album. I didn't like the style, or I didn't like the sound of this album, and that's fine. But to just condemn them and say the band is over, they're not the same anymore, they, they sold out, whatever. Like I just don't get the mentality of it. If you listen to it, you like it, great. If you don't like it, fine. Maybe give it a chance a few years down the road because your tastes are going to change as you grow and, and just as they did. Um, I, I just don't understand the antagonistic view that people take when it comes to art. I, I know what you mean. Uh, Metallica fans are awful for that. Like, you know, they listened to the Black Album once and like threw it away. And now some of those same people are going back and really listening to the Black Album going, actually, that's pretty good. You mm -hmm. know, they're, they, they, they're progressing in their sound. Like you mentioned Van Halen. They were already getting into synthesizers and everything else in 1984. Right. Right. The, that had started then. They would have made an album a lot like 5150 uh, with Dave Lee Roth had he stayed in the band. Uh, how it would have turned out, I have no idea because David can't pull off those songs like, like Sammy can. Um, right. It would have been an interesting experiment, but, you know, Dave didn't want to go down that road. But Van Halen was already evolving into what they became in the mid 80s and into the early 90s. Well, I think they would have written around it. You know, they, they would have written that the, the song structures with that in mind of, of how he would sing it um, or certainly modify. Like if, if Eddie came up with a song and then they brought it to rehearsal and then, think, OK, we're going to have to modify this a little bit. I'm sure that they would have found a way to pull it off. What amazes me is that. You've got a guitar player who's so well known for his guitar playing, but yet 
integrated him playing keyboards. So now, okay, I can't play guitar live when I'm playing keyboards and not bringing in a keyboard player, but yet making it work. That's pretty amazing to me what the way they did that. Oh, 100%. And considering how drunk he was, it's even more impressive. <laughs> well, yeah, there's always that. I, I will say, though, I, I did think it was a cool integration because that was that was really on the edge because there were not a lot of bands that were the kind of rock bands that they were that were doing anything with keys outside of a song or a part mm-hmm. uh, that they would only do in the studio. And that, well, we can't do that live and then limiting themselves that way. They they were really cutting edge for for my taste. And for a lot of people's taste, uh, I'm glad I evolved with Van Halen uh, at the time. I, I didn't know a lot of the early stuff. I came, I came in on 1984. So my yeah. first Van Halen song was Jump. So I was used mm-hmm. to to the the keys and stuff. But I, I couldn't imagine uh, liking the early part of a band's trajectory and then uh, something happens and just, well, don't fuck it. They're, they're dead to me after that. Like you're, you're just denying yourself the opportunity to enjoy more music and, and why torture yourself? I kind of wish I had been you know, into those things at the time that, that some of those changes were made to see the reaction of people. Like I remember um, when I was on the Deep Purple podcast and we were talking about the the early psychedelic first three albums of Deep Purple and then they did the concerto, then they come out with Deep Purple and Rock, which is just a hardcore, everything dramatic from beginning to end. In fact, Richie said, if it's not dramatic or, or exciting, it doesn't belong on the album. And like for people that were fans of Hush and One More Rainy Day to to hear that, like what was their reaction to actually see that happening in real time, I think would have been a fascinating place to be. Oh, I agree. Yeah, that would have been pretty cool. Yeah. Well, that's nothing to do with Thunder, though. <laughs> we've talked let's, an hour and we've covered two songs. We got to. Yeah, back let's it. let's get back to the band here. This one is called Don't Wait for Me, although they were waiting for us. you not hear Paul Rogers in this? I mean, he just sounds, he's got the, the feel of him down so well. He had to be an influence. I would think, yeah. Uh, I, you know, and this is, I guess, the ballad uh, on this mm-hmm. side, but it's, it's more of a bluesy. Uh, yeah. th- th- this really scratches my blues itch, mm-hmm. uh, uh, th- this tracker. And I love that it's not, again, uh, like we talked about on Dirt it's, it's not the sappy, uh, I love you, baby, uh, you know, ballad. Uh, Don't wait for me is a great refrain. Uh, a powerful performance by Danny Bowes on this. I love uh, how he uh, performs this track here, singing his voice is just top-notch here. Yeah. Um, and, and like I said, it, it kind of scratches that blues itch that I get on occasion when I want to pop on some ZZ Top or, mm-hmm. or or something like that. So I'm curious, though, uh, what are your overall thoughts on this one? 
Well, I like that they put this in the third position. I think it's it's a good place to kind of have a little bit of a breakdown from the the more forward rock and roll. Uh, you got to have a little variety on the album, even for a band that's doing straightforward rock and roll. You got to you got to have something that every song can't be the same, you know. So I like that there was a little bit of a breakup here. I really like the bass line on this. I think there's some great bass play on this whole album. I think the bass players is fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really creative lines. There's a lot of straightforward bass playing on here, as you would expect with this style of music. But he finds his way to add his personality to it. And uh, and I really like that. You know, I'm, I'm, as you well know, I'm really big on bass lines. Um, mm-hmm. I think it has a good feeling to it. I, I think it's a nice song. Um, I I think the vocals really sell it. And for a, a blues song, it's the vocals have to deliver. If they don't, there's no point in the song. Agree 100. Uh, a song like "She's So Fine" was really. Uh, I really love the bass work on "She's So Fine." That's really where it kind of stood out for me on this side. But uh, yeah. to me, that was kind of a showcase for Luke Morley and his guitars. Mm-hmm. This is more a showcase for Danny Bowes uh, and and his singing. And yeah. uh, I, I love. And you said sequencing matters, uh, so you're going to have "She's So Fine" uh, into kind of the dirty rock and dirty love coming down a little bit here nice bluesy slower track and then we're going to crank it right back up again on the next track it, it sequenced really really well very much so and, and again pr- uh, credit to uh andy taylor for the production i would imagine he was the one that probably made that decision uh maybe not by himself but uh certainly would have been heavily inputting uh, on that oh yeah yeah and i'll just make a blanket statement for the whole album the the order of songs on the whole album is perfect i would not mm-hmm. i i can't imagine anything being better than what they chose exactly and i i credit most of that actually to andy taylor because the band themselves were just kind of newbies yeah. they just formed the year before right they're in the studio for the first time it's their first record and they even said we drank way too much we were just kind of having fun mm-hmm. uh playing music and just writing stuff because that that's kind of all they knew they'd only been together for about a year so right. yeah things like that i 100 credit to uh, andy taylor yeah, and and the one thing I would wonder is, you know, at what point did Andy get involved and in how much of the original songs that they had? Because if they had been together for a year, they were together before they had a producer, they were already writing some of these songs. I, I wonder how much of that was altered, like Andy would come in and say, okay, I, I like the structure, but here's what we're going to do with this song. How much did he modify what they did originally? Because mm-hmm. then the, the real challenge comes to the second album. You know, you've had a year to write these songs, to perfect them. You have a producer coming in and telling you how to change them. But now you're writing songs with that experience under your belt. So does it, do you fold like a lot of bands do where they don't know how to write under that new pressure? You know, first of all, you've got a time constraint because the record company wants another album. Second of all, now you're not writing what you feel and what you want anymore because now you're going to be told, here's what you're going to do. Uh, it's it's a whole different ballgame after you've had that initial success. Guns N' Roses was one that really suffered from that too, I think, because they had years to make Appetite for Destruction. Yep, and had that whole thing perfected. Uh, you know, Van Halen had their entire act perfected when they went in the studio. They knew those songs inside and out. It took them no time to record those tracks. Well, and I would imagine Alex and, and Eddie had been playing together since they were kids, right? So a lot of those songs yep. they'd probably had done a decade earlier. Yeah, exactly. So uh, that makes it easier. And I know uh, Thunder's second album is an album called Laughing at Judgment Day, That's or Laughing on Judgment Day, probably my least favorite effort from the band. So Mm -hmm. they maybe did suffer a little bit from that. But I remember them talking about uh, recording Backstreet Symphony. There's actually a great uh, quote uh, from the keyboardist uh, Ben Matthews. And he said, it was like being at a party where an album broke out every now and then. (laughs) Yeah, I can see that. 
I can see that. Uh, you know, one, one, and I had to, um, I didn't go back and double check the dates. Who was the band that did Higher Ground? Was that, it wasn't REM, was it? Uh, like Red Hot oh, Chili no, that Peppers? Was a, a Stevie Wonder, yeah, it was a Chili Peppers, but that was an old Stevie yeah. Wonder song, wasn't it? Yes. I thought so. So I, I, this was one of the ones I had wondered if it was a cover or not. It is not. Um, no. But they could have done an interesting version of Higher Ground. They do do some pretty good covers. Uh, there, there's a few bands that, that they cover in their career, and there's one coming up on this record. But mm-hmm. yeah, you, 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 I always, uh, yeah, you see that title, and you automatically think of, of that track, right? It just happened to be on the new Extreme record. There's a song called Beautiful Girls. I'm like, oh, did they cover Van Halen? That'd be really cool. Instead, they did an original, and it's absolutely terrible. We actually talk oh. about it on the current uh, and the podcast, The Rock. I play a little bit just to torture Kevin Brown. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, he, he needs it sometimes. He was asking for it, too, because he talked about how much he hated that track. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to play it for you now. So instead of when we spun the wheel, instead of a runaround, I played a little bit of Beautiful Girls and he got quite mad. <laughs> well, you know, I th- he should know not to push you. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I- I'm never going to. Someone said uh, I was worried Corey was going to run the joke in the ground. There's no such thing. I've, ha- I've hung around John Mariano enough to know you can't run a joke in the- into the ground. You keep doing and doing it. It's going to come all the way around to become brilliant again. So there you go. Well, let's listen to a little bit of Higher Ground. Let's do it. I really like the galloping bass in the beginning that we heard. I, I kind of wish there was more of that in the song. Um, I think that would have moved it along a little bit more for me, but it's got a really good guitar solo in it. Um, the song has really good energy. Mm-hmm. It does have a speed up at the end, which I wasn't expecting. So that was a nice surprise. I, I didn't think it was going to get as heavy as it did. Uh, so uh, it's always it's always nice when there's a little bit of a change and it's not so much of a straightforward song. Lyrically, this one always meant a little bit more to me because I grew up in a, in a very small town, very dead-end town. Uh, so mm-hmm. uh, lines like, I'm looking down along this dead-end street, all the people get, are getting older, but they don't give a damn, their lives are incomplete. That's how I grew up, was with that. And that chorus, I would just belt out as loud as I could. I don't want to spend my whole life in this town because that was kind of everybody my age, we were stuck in this place. Like, I just want to get out. I want to experience life. I want to get to higher ground. So uh, lyrically, nice. this one always kind of, uh, you know, meant a little bit more to me, but another cool straight ahead rocker musically. It's fantastic. We get, we get those great Luke Morley guitars in that bass line. I, I love the speed up. They didn't do a lot of that uh, in, in their career, but it works incredibly well in this song. It wasn't a single, but it's one they perform. I think still to this day, it's one of their most popular live tracks. Oh, this could have been a single, yeah. you know, style wise, I think. And I think it could have done pretty well because it's, it's relatable. It's catchy. You know, I think this would have done really well on the radio. Not not that, um, you know, Dirty Love and She's So Fine wouldn't have, but I, I think this would have been like a great third single. And, and they released five of this record. 
Oh, they so did. Oh, she, really? And that wasn't no. She's so fine. Dirty love. Then Backstreet Symphony. Give me some loving. And Love Walked In was the fifth one. Well, yeah, you got to do the cover. I guess. Yeah. I mean, that's that's how you're going to get some notice, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how a lot of bands started out was throwing a couple covers uh, of popular songs or or maybe forgotten songs on their albums. Yeah. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, Deep Purple did a lot of Hendrix, right? And and Beatles in the in the beginning. Um, interestingly, just uh, a couple of days ago, uh, so uh, we're recording this in real time in uh, at the end of June, and uh, this won't come out probably until after the uh, the podcast break where I, I move it to another distributor. But um, I just covered uh, the Beatles Revolver with Nathan from the Deep Purple podcast, and I mean, going from really intricate riffs like Andrew Bird can sing which that's more my wheelhouse. I mean, half the song is like one riff. <laughs> you know, it's like the longest riff in music history uh, and only a two minute song. Um, these riffs, like these songs are are harder for me to like only because they're, they're a little too straightforward and simple, but I'm not, I'm not bashing it. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, they're like, like yourself, this is your wheelhouse. For me, it, it's not mine. So this wasn't a song that I really liked. Um, but I did, I did like the baseline, and I will say again, for what these guys are doing, they are amazingly good at it. Dude, it's funny you you talk about uh, Revolver uh, for the Beatles. To me, I I gravitate more to the early stuff. Give me, give me Rubber Soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, give me those albums. Yeah. When when they get into Revolver and the White Album and all that, that's kind of when I check out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Still, still can appreciate yeah. it. Still can respect it, but not my favorite stuff. Give me Rubber Soul. That was my favorite Beatles album. So you like more like the skiffle area yeah. of of the Beatles. Yeah. I, I got into them. I'm pretty sure the first album that I got was Magical Mystery Tour, which is exactly the opposite of I Want to Hold Your Hand. Exactly. It's, it's very much, we don't even know what we're on anymore. <laughs> we're writing music anyway. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. It's, it's, uh, it, it's, it's interesting. But that's the thing is that's what's cool is that we can, we can have completely different, uh, you know, views on what we like or what we enjoy. And we can still, sit down and have a discussion. I can find things in these songs that I appreciate and like and still have this music not necessarily be in my wheelhouse. But there's, but I, I can say I love the production. I can say I think this, the song structure is really good. I mean, the writing is there. The performances are there. Um, but yeah, this song didn't really strike me too much. I think if the, if the bass line had stuck more with that galloping kind of thing, almost like a Black Sabbath bass line, um, I think I would have liked it a little more. Okay. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. but a good song, a, a good, and I think they really picked a perfect tempo for this one too. I think if they if they put the tempo up in the in the main part of the song, I don't think it would have worked as well. No, I agree. Yeah, uh, sometimes you got to dial it back a little bit, and I thought this is a good one for that. Yeah, this would be a good song too after you've played like a couple up tempo or heavier songs in your set to maybe dial it down a little bit with a song like this. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, our next song on the list is called Until My Dying Day.
This song I really like. I, it's got such a nice feel. I love that slide guitar uh, complementing the acoustic guitar in the beginning. Um, when the song kicks in later, it's it's got this one note that keeps throwing off every other repeat, which I thought was fascinating. I, I love that style of writing. It's probably the most progressive they got on the album. But the mm-hmm. song overall, I mean, the, it's a beautiful vocal. And uh, yeah, I really like this one. This is kind of the love song, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to love you until my dying day. Yeah. And uh, like, like it, it elevates from the other uh, ballads of this type that were around in this time. So I yeah. really can appreciate it, too. And you mentioned the uh, the wonderful acoustic guitar. And then uh, Danny Bowes is just a beautiful voice over top. And, and then when the song kicks in, it kind of takes you into a little unexpected place, too, which is always kind of appreciated. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm really glad you like this one. And, and I was thinking uh, which ones are going to Scott is going to gravitate to. Uh, this was one of them. I thought I, I think yeah. he's going to dig this one. Oh, for sure. And and it does have kind of a Led Zeppelin feel to it as as well. Yep, I, I definitely can see that. Yeah, I, I could hear Robert Plant singing this. Um, but yeah, it's it, it. And again, I mean, the beautiful production has so much to do with it. They captured such an amazing full body sound on that acoustic. Um, really, really gives some depth to the song. And um, the, the vocal, though, really delivered. You know, I and you know, I and I don't know if you and I have really talked about this a whole lot, but in, in general, I'm not a lyrics guy. Um, I, I look at the the voice uh, almost more like an instrument, and a lot of that has to do with the fact that I listen to music that was recorded by tribes and in caves and stuff like Cirque du Soleil that doesn't actually have any language to it whatsoever. That's it's literally gibberish, um, mm. except for the occasional Josh Groban song that they do. <laughs> You know, we, we talked about sequencing earlier, and, and to me, this is a great capper to side one. Yes. Yeah. Is it is this the album break? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah. This this is this is the kind of song that you you want because it's gonna give you a little bit of a, a relaxation moment, but enough to make you want to hear side two. Mm-hmm. And not say, okay, I'll listen to the other side later, or I'll, you know, flip the, the cassette over later. And again, coming off of higher ground. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of more of a, a big rocking type with big booming guitars and stuff. And we're going to go into the little, uh, you know, uh, acoustic ballad uh, right. that, that kicks off until my dying day. So, uh, again, impeccably sequenced. Yes, very, very well done. <laughs> 